the reading of God's Word. I want to thank the elders for this chance to speak tonight. I want to thank Mark. He uh, uh, is here tonight, but he's been gone all week. And so Barry and I, uh, Barry this morning and me this evening, have a chance to, he said, pick your favorite book of the Bible, of the New Testament. He said the New Testament. I'm like, man, this is really hard. So I thought, well, I, I could pick the shortest one of the New Testament, just make it easy, but I decided not to. So I've picked Philippians, and we're looking at Philippians tonight. I need to tell you a story, though. As I always begin teaching, I have to tell a share a little story. But this story, this describes a marriage, and this is not the way Lori and I manage our marriage. But I was intrigued, so I want to share this. Husband and wife, they've been married 60 years and had no secrets from one from each other except for one secret. The woman kept in her closet a shoebox that she forbade her husband from ever opening. But when she was on her deathbed, and, and with her blessing, he opened the box. And inside, he found a crocheted doll and $95,000 $95, cash. $95,000. And so she explained, my mother told me, that the secret to a happy marriage was to never argue. Instead, I should keep quiet and crochet a doll. Well, the husband was touched. There was only one doll, which meant she'd only been angry with him one time in 60 years of marriage. So he turned to him and said, so she, he turned to her and said, well, what's all the cash for? To which she answered, well, that's all the money I made from selling all the dolls I made over the years. Well, Lori's not into doll making. We probably get about as angry with each other as anybody else does. But we have enjoyed 29 years of marriage. Look forward to number 30 this year for us in December. I want to talk tonight briefly as we look at the, the book of Philippians at the concept of lens. Binoculars, microscopes have lens, telescopes have lens. And I happen to wear, well, right now I'm wearing contacts, but I wear glasses. Glasses have lens. And from the time that I was seven years old, I've always looked at my world through a lens. It was much more clear that way. Anytime that I don't, things can be a little fuzzy. So I've always done that. So I understand what it means to look at your world through a particular lens. So tonight... I ask you to open up your Bible to the book of Philippians. And we're going to talk about lens as we look at the Philippian church, at the Philippian letter. The Philippian church was founded by God. Paul came to Philippi because the Spirit told him to. He had, if you remember the story out of Acts, that he had gone to the, the first churches that he established at the beginning of the second missionary journey. And then he'd wandered through Asia Minor, what is presently Turkey. He'd ended up in Troas, not sure where to, to preach next. And then he had that dream, the uh, Macedonian man. And so he crosses over, and he knows he's supposed to be there. He's excited. He goes into Philippi, and there's no synagogue there. Every other place he'd been, there's always been a synagogue, and there's not one there. And so he goes and finds some people by a river some people that believed in God that were Jewish. And so he begins talking to them. He begins talking in the market square. 
and the people respond in the city. And pretty soon he has a church going there, and some exciting things are happening. But then, as you know, when you read the story, some, un, some events go the wrong way for him, and he eventually gets escorted out of town. He converts the Philippian jailer, and we have a great story, but he leaves. So he doesn't get to spend a lot of time in Philippi, but it's a church that he loves. So he leaves. He goes on to Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, the rest of the second missionary journey. He ends up having an opportunity to go back through Philippi. He goes on his third missionary journey. He gets to go through Philippi again twice in that missionary journey. And then he goes back. He ends up in Jerusalem. He's arrested in Jerusalem. He ends up in Caesarea, uh, Philippi, for uh, several years before he's sent off to Rome. He's in Rome. At least that's our um, uh, belief at this point. And one day, a man named Epaphroditus shows up. And Paul is so excited. He hadn't gotten any news about Philippi in a while. What news he'd heard was disturbing to him. And he, Epaphroditus is there. And so he is so excited, and he eagerly listens, of course, to what Epaphroditus has to say. But as you read the book, and we'll look at this in just a second, in chapter 2, Epaphroditus is sick. And so Epaphroditus has to be um, uh, nursed and, and cared for and taken care of. And some of the news that he provides, Paul points out that there are some serious issues. And that this church that Paul loves and this church that has sent him a, a wonderful gift that he has received has a problem. It's a church that doesn't have as much joy as it once did. So Paul sits down to write a letter. He knows what the problem is for this church. He's seen it himself, in himself. He's seen it in a lot of other people. It's something that he thinks many, many people have. So he thinks long and hard about how to address this particular issue. So today we have this marvelous, amazing document, four chapters, short chapters for that matter. And they are filled with emotion, with joy, and with an incredible personal rebuke by Paul. So what we want to do tonight is to look at this letter and see what Paul has to say about division and about selfishness. So what I want to do is begin reading in chapter 1, focusing first on verses 3 to 11. 3 to 11. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best. It may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So Paul thinks, how am I supposed to get this point across? Here he begins by using two major words that he uses over and over again through these four chapters, through this little short letter. And he repeats them in critical moments, I believe, driving home his point. The first word 
is the word joy. Joy. And the second word is the word think. Now these words come up over and over again to make a clear point. And I put it up here on a slide. To have joy in the Lord, Paul says, and joy in their lives, they need to think the same way and be unified and not divisive. To have joy in the Lord and joy in their lives, they need to think the same way and be unified and not divisive. Let me talk for a minute about these two words that keep coming up. The first word is the word joy. It's the word karan in the original language. It's a word that clearly refers to the joy one is to have in life that crosses over all other parts of your life. It's a joy of the father who holds his baby for the very first time. It goes all the way down deep into your soul. It's also the same joy that same father has for that same baby when he's up for the 20th time in the row at 2 a.m. Because he knows it's his child. And he is going to take care of that child no matter what. It's a joy that, that penetrates you no matter what the circumstances happen to be that particular day. You're willing to be and you are a joyful person. The word think is from the word fronete in the original language. It's basically the idea conveyed with the phrase a frame of mind. A frame of mind or life direction. It's the sense of thought, but there are emotional undertones, strong ones to this particular word. I think, though, it would be a mistake to, to say it's, it's all emotional. It's not like that. But it's also not a word that's just think as in how we might process it. It's just cold logic. It's not just logic, but it's the way we, we process together. Like this, when Lori and I walk into a bookstore, we think the same thing. This is a great place. I love being here, and I could spend all day in this place. That's the kind of thinking that he's, he has in mind. It's the thinking when, when we are thinking the same way. And Paul keeps coming back to this word. And so in verse 7, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. The word feel in the NIV, if you'll compare it to several other translations, is the word think. It is that word. And it's a word that conveys this strong sense of not only uh, thinking, but feeling. So there are three major things in the first chapter. The prayer that I read just a second ago, 3 to 11. Very emotional, affectionate, and challenging prayer. Paul pours out his heart, and he calls them even to account in this prayer. He challenges them in this prayer. It's also, he goes on in verse 12, starting in verse 12, to talk about ministry, his ministry. They are obviously very concerned about his ministry. They're wondering what's going on. You can just almost hear the questions that, that Epaphroditus comes to give to Paul to take back to the Philippians. Because they're saying, can you, can you minister okay there, Paul? Are you having any luck talking to anybody else and these kind of things? And so Paul assures them that all of his needs are being taken care of and he is able to do ministry. And then he talks about a visit. And I think he's purposeful in that in verse 27. He wants to... To encourage them, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you 
or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. You see, Paul is there, and he's using subtle ways to stress the reality that we need to be one body. We need to be of one mind. We need to be a unified church. And so Paul is really stressing this to them. And so he's saying, I may come visit you and see what it's like myself. So though he doesn't use the word joy or this word for thank, he's bringing up these same issues. But I want to move on to chapter 2. Paul here is, is dealing with the issue of how is unity achieved. We can talk about unity all day long. I could stand up here and say, you know, we need to be unified over and over again. But how can we be unified? You know, many of you, we all live in this culture today that one of the reasons that when you go to H-E-B and there's like how many different sauces? 50 sauces besides picante sauce and all the other different. I mean, why are there so many different brands? Because there's so many different people who have so many different tastes that they like. And so we're so different. How could we think the same? How is unity achieved? And so I want to read just briefly verses 1 to 5. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others. In fact, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Paul points out that the only way to do what he wants them to do in verse 2 is to give everything up, just as Jesus did. In 2, verse 2, he says, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded. That is the word phronete. Having the same mind. And he, Paul here, it's kind of fascinating. He uses that word twice, right up next to each other. It's the same mind word and the same phrase, united in spirit, in the NIV. That's the same word twice in this passage. He's pounding on the pulpit. Do you hear him? Here. Just wanted to make sure you could hear him. But he's, he's stressing this issue. Same mind over and over again. Paul knows how they feel. He's felt the same way before when he's looked out and he's seen other brothers and sisters, Jews and Christians and at various times in his life. Why can't say they see things the way I see them? Those people over there are so stubborn. If so-and-so were not here, then we could reach unity. There's all sorts of excuses, all sorts of ideas that come to our mind. And Paul writes... That's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way Christ does things. And then he shares that incredible hymn, starting in verse 6. That hymn that haunts Christians, challenges Christians, and it, and, it, and, it, and, it, and it brings us to the reality of what we're called to do for the last 2,000 years. Just like Everett used it this morning. I thought, how appropriate. Because he used it without me even telling him to. But it, it just shows that this is a hymn that reverberates with us, but challenges us. 
we read that and we go, wow, that's amazing. And that's what we're supposed to think. And so Paul is laying it all out for them in this point. Paul is trying to get across to them that you are not the important one. Jesus is the important one. And so he challenges them to give everything up. It's not about you. The only way to get to unity is to realize it's not about you. What a challenge. Then he says, verses, he writes verses 12 to 18. And I want to read these because I think these verses, just, he just continues this whole thing, this whole march that he's on. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. There's that word again, rejoice. He just keeps coming back to it because he wants them to understand the only way to joy is to give everything up. And that just runs counter to our thinking. But he, he emphasized that, that this is something you have to work at. You have to work out, quote, your salvation with fear and trembling. I think Paul is laying out the reality that if this is going to become a reality in your life, then it's a work. Now, I don't mean it's a work as in a legalistic work to save you. That's not what Paul is saying here. But he is saying... It takes effort to look at people and say, this is a brother that I love, even if I don't agree with them. It's a brother I love, and I'm willing to give up for them. That's not easy to say. It's not easy to think. It's not easy to think positively. And so we are challenged by that to do that. And then he goes on immediately in verse 13. For it is God who works in you. The only way you can successfully control your thoughts, change your thoughts, alter the way that you're approaching the world is to depend on God. God's the one who's going to do it for you. It's not going to be done within uh, your own self working it out. It's going to be done because God is at work inside of you, changing who you are and what you're doing. And so, we're to work on this and not expect everything to be different all of a sudden. It just doesn't happen. But when it does, it's marvelous. It's absolutely, we're like stars shining in the universe. I love that phrase. And then we'll be joyful. And so, Paul moves on from there. And he points out, talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2, how mentors are very helpful in this work. When we're trying to to serve other people that aren't worthy to be served. We need some help. How does that done? And when we can watch someone else do that, then it's so much easier. And so Paul says, look at Timothy. And he, I think he's kind of digging into them a little bit. 
when he does this because he makes the point there uh, in verse 20. He demonstrates his deep concern for you. Others are busy with their own concerns, not those of Jesus. Paul is making the point. There's people are not paying attention to what Jesus wants. Timothy is. Pay attention to Timothy when he comes, and he will help you see what you should do. And then he talks about Epaphroditus. Of course, he has some personal things in there about his health and about the fact that he did get better and he's coming back and those kind of things. But, of course, he points out the fact that Epaphroditus is a good mentor. He's a man that cares about this church. And so we should be working so hard to do that. And then Paul comes into chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Paul makes a comparison and a contrast. A comparison and a contrast. He, he encourages joy right at the very beginning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. There's no trouble for me to say that. And so he, he does that, but then he moves straight into a verbal thrashing of those of us who compare ourselves to others, which is just about everybody in this room. Because we usually walk around the room and we have little thoughts in our head. Well, you know, that person's not looking very good today. I look a lot better than that person. Well, that was really a dumb thing to say. Or, you know, we just have funny thoughts. And I'm not going to make up ideas because you all know what they are. But uh, uh, it's, it's things that all make us uncomfortable because we compare ourselves to others. And we shouldn't be doing that. And then Paul says in verses 4 to 6, if we're going to compare ourselves to each other, let me give you my list. To which he does. To which we all fail because we're not nearly as good as Paul is. And so Paul is saying that is not what we're to be about. When we're thinking about other people, we don't need to be comparing ourselves to those people. And then in verse 7, he gets down to the words that Ted wrote, read just a minute ago, and I believe are the focus of this passage. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. He goes on here, but his focus in these few verses is to say, you know all that great stuff? It was, it was, it's all trash. It's not worthy compared to Jesus Christ. There's no reason to even bring that up because it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. And so we need to set that aside and see people the way Jesus sees people. This is where Paul wants them to spend their time to focus here on what they need to understand. Verse 8, they need to know Christ. His focus is on the knowing, that intimate pursuit of another to learn about what they're like, what they're thinking like, what they're doing. How much do we want to know Christ? Do we want to know just enough to get into heaven? That may not be enough. We might need to know more than that. And then again in verse 8, he says, And to gain Christ. We gain when we have faith in Christ, because it is then that we gain the righteousness in Christ from God in heaven. And by faith, excuse me. And that's a powerful mover among our relationships. And so, 
I want to bring up this slide because it says something that I want to talk about for the next few minutes. Paul is, is, is trying to get across to us in these verses that Jesus is the center and has to be the center of our thinking if we're going to successfully see people differently. Because I can sit here and tell you and read chapter 2 over and over again to you about being unified and of the same mind. But we won't be. And so we no longer need to view our friends as people of themselves that we love. We view them through the lens of Christ's love. And I want to stress that last section. We view them through the lens of Christ's love. You see, we have gained them through Christ. All these people in this church, we've gained because they are in Christ and they are lovely. And so I do what I have to do to keep those relationships intact. And this is even more true of, of, of those outside of this church. So knowing Christ and gaining Christ leads me to those next four phrases of Paul that he brings up in this passage. With that knowing, I gain the power of his resurrection. And with that power, I share in the fellowship of suffering with him. And I agree to suffer just like he did for the sake of the people around me. You see, I don't think I'm willing to suffer for anyone unless I see them through the lens of Christ's love. Unless I'm willing to put on glasses of Jesus Christ, I don't see people right. I see people as selfish or silly or stupid or whatever kind of adverbs come to our mind, adjectives. And that's not the way Jesus sees them. He sees every one of us as someone that's incredibly valuable, as a child of God, as someone super, super important to him because he is your child, your son, and your daughter. And so he sees that person much more important than I see them. And so I need to put on his glasses. This knowledge and this suffering is not there so I can go to heaven. That does happen. I thank God for that. But that's not why Paul penned these words here. His point is still the division of this church between the people whom he loves in that church. So he moves on to that next sentence in verse 12. If you notice in verse 12, it goes on. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. His point is, verses 7 to 11 are the perfect. This is how we want to see the world. This is what we need to be doing. This is how we need to be interacting as human beings inside of this church trying to figure out what it means by being a church. But then Paul does admit, I'm not exactly there. Paul had his foibles. He had his mistakes. He had his sins that he lived with, just like each one of us here does. And so he said, I've not quite attained this. And so this is the deal. I strain every day to do this. 
I put everything I can to be this way. I've decided I'm not going to go halfway. I'm not going to just do it, you know, for, for about an hour in the morning and then do what I want to do all day long. But I'm going to do it all day long, every single day. Am I willing to see my brothers and sisters in this church differently than I've ever seen them before? In fact, he goes on in verse 15. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. That word view of things, there's that word again. The word to think, to mind, to feel. And, and so in the NIV, they chose this translation to think such a view of things. And notice the end of that verse. I love this. And if on some points you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. And that sounds like kind of tongue-in-cheek a little bit there. And it's the same word again. Paul is hammering home the point. We are to think the same thing. We are to think the same thing. And if we don't think the same thing, thank God, God is there. And He will reveal it to us. He will help us through. And so, we need to be doing this. And that brings us to chapter 4. Chapter 4 describes to us why chapter 3 is the way it is. In chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers, verses 1, 2, and 3, Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, how would you like your name to be in the Bible? Now, wouldn't that warm your heart? Not like this, do you? I don't want my name to be up there. Yes, and I want Doug Brown to get along with, uh, that's not fun. And the reality is, Paul calls them out because I think because he's really, really, really concerned. He doesn't do this in any of his other, other uh, letters. But he knows about this situation. And he wants them to understand the importance that they need to work on that relationship. That it is worth working on. You know, when, when, when we're in relationship with another adult in a, in a place like Mac, and that relationship goes south for whatever reason, it becomes hard to talk to people, visit with people. And Paul here is challenging us, saying, don't give up. Figure out the way that you're going to maintain that relationship. Because that relationship with that brother or sister is the most important thing. You can't walk off and say, well, they just disagree with the Bible so I can shut them out. Because when we do that and just walk off and think we're wiping our feet of them, I don't think that's exactly what they had in mind. And most of the time, our disagreements in church don't come over strong doctrinal differences. It's very, not very often. Most of our time, if we're honest with ourselves, it's over a lot of other things. And I'm not going to list them because I don't want to tell you what I'm frustrated with you about. I'm just kidding. 
But the reality is, the point of this book is that there's no way to will yourself to like someone you don't like. I wish there was. But there's, you, can't, you can't do that. But what you can do is you can see them through the lens of Jesus Christ. This is what he was writing for Yodia and Syntyche, for the whole church there in Philippi. And I think that's the reason why he wrote the whole letter to the whole church, not to just them. You know, he does send one personal letter that we still have, Philemon. But he didn't write a letter to Yodia or to Syntyche or to both. He wrote a letter to the church as a whole because he knows what's going on between these two is not only there. But we all need to hear these words because these words are extremely valuable as we deal with each other and as we grow as a church. And so we cannot live this life Christ called us to on our own. We're going to need him and his lens. And he then goes in chapter 4 and he closes with all those beautiful words. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. He brings the joy back into the picture again. Let the gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Then he says, don't be anxious, but pray. You need to be in prayer about these things. And then he, he goes into verse eight, verse 8, and I just think this makes so much sense. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, he has this list. Think about such things. When you find yourself meditating on what some other person is doing wrong, it might help you to focus on some of these things. Because I can tell you right now, every one of our brothers and sisters in this church does a lot of good stuff. A lot of good stuff. So, ten verses 10 and following, he gives a lot of personal, very personal uh, uh, thoughts. He gives appreciation for the gift they gave to him and their concern for him. And Paul thanks them for the gifts and assures them over and over again that he is fine. I had the opportunity the last two days uh, to spend them in, in Abilene at ACU for homecoming, and to see Anthony March. That's the main reason I went, to see my son. Um, but while there, I had an opportunity to hear Kent and Amber Brantley speak. Kent, um, the school hosted an event on Friday afternoon at 4 for all the students, media, and community, and they, they had an opportunity to see this couple have a conversation with Randy Harris. Randy's one of their uh, Bible faculty. And... and and, and to talk about their experience. And if you're not fully aware, uh, Kent is the one, the first doctor to come down with the Ebola virus. And he was extremely sick, was transported to Atlanta. He recovered in Atlanta, and now um, uh, they're, they're beginning to put their life back together again. Uh, but in the midst of this um, uh, almost hour-long conversation with Randy, uh, and, in a very full Moody Coliseum, for those of you who know the, the venue. Um, Randy asked him a question that I think is very, very important. He says, how do you prepare yourself for an event like this in your life? You were simple missionaries. You had, just, you had decided that you were going to go and, and do God's will in West Africa. And when Ebola strikes, you're a doctor. You just continue doing what you've always been doing. This is what you do. This is who you are. And then you end up being the first American infected. And then, all of a sudden, everyone in the whole world knows your name. That's a whole different ball of wax. And you end up infected. Everybody knows you. And if you've seen interviews with Kent, 
They had a national interview with Matt Lauer and as well as several others. You've heard from him and you can probably understand and see that the man has a very deep, devout faith. He's very strong. He has some great answers to questions that have been given to him. And so Randy says, how do you get ready for something like this? You're just puddling along, doing your work as any other Christian would be doing and whatever you're doing, and then all of a sudden you're on the national news and, and Matt Lauer is asking you a question about your faith in front of a TV camera. How do you know what to say right? <laughs> Kent sat there for a little while trying to think of what he was going to answer. And then he said, and I paraphrase, I don't have it exactly. He said something along the lines of, understand that this is a day-to-day decision. And each of my day-to-day decisions I've seen are, are very important to get me ready for something like this. And so for you, what you decide today will impact your preparedness for following God. I really don't do justice to his words. But the point I want to get across is, He's, he's saying what you decide today, Sunday, and how you live your life and how you work with your fellow Christians is dictates your preparedness for seeing God one day. And what you do on Monday and what you do on Tuesday of this week and Wednesday, those, that's when this decisions, these decisions are made. And so it's, it's not something that just some big thing happens and we're ready. Because when the big thing happens... It'll tell whether we're already ready or not. And we have to be preparing all the time. And so, do you want joy in your life? Joy that goes beyond all understanding? Then focus your life today like focusing a telescope on others like Jesus did. Quit thinking of yourself. Find a way to bless others. When you are in conflict with a brother or sister in church, figure out a way. And that joy will constantly be there for you. If you have a prayer concern or a need tonight, we're going to have a song in just a minute. And we want to give you that opportunity to share that concern with us so that we can be praying about that this week. If you want to respond and you, want, and you have not you know, expressed uh, a love and devotion to God and been ready to be baptized, we would love to do that for you tonight. Let's go ahead and do that now as we stand and sing this invitation song.